This episode is brought to you by the Elite Academy, formerly known as hrvcourse.com. The Elite Academy now offers in-depth online courses on multiple subjects. So if you're enjoying the content of this podcast, but you're looking for a more structured and logical progression, looking at the science and application of these subjects, check out the Elite Academy at EliteHRV.com academy. Welcome to the Elite HRV Podcast, where experts share their experience using heart rate variability and other biomarkers to optimize health and human performance. Welcome back to the Elite HRV Podcast. This is your host, Jason Moore, and I'm very excited to have Dr. Richard Hart joining us from up from Canada. Welcome, Dr. Richard. Thanks very much, Jason. I'm glad to be here. Appreciate it. Definitely. Yeah. And, you know, uh, you've had a couple interactions with our team and we got to catch up recently, and I'm pretty excited about the project that you have going on right now um, because... For folks who are listening, Dr. Richard has a really interesting background combining uh, experience as an elite wrestler and competing internationally in, in wrestling and going on to being a very successful and experienced hepatic surgeon who uh, specializes and, and performed uh, extremely complicated surgeries, specifically around oncology, I believe and is now developing a new platform to help train surgeons and other cognitive athletes and elite performers in specifically around the healthcare space to perform better in their jobs and in their life as well. And it's, it's a, a platform that I believe is going to be looking at a very holistic approach to uh, these jobs and these elite performers that uh, go untrained, not like the traditional sport elite athlete in many regards. And so specifically, we're going to dig into things like neurofeedback, HRV biofeedback, and other monitoring tools to help improve the internal self-regulation and adaptive capacity uh, of these elite performers. And, and maybe we can even define the term cognitive athlete towards the beginning here. Um, but a lot of stuff to cover, so I'm excited, Dr. Richard. Thank you for thanks for joining again. <laughs> oh, thanks, thanks, thanks for such a nice introduction. That's that's really quite kind. <laughs> oh, great. Yeah, no, it's uh, easy. Um, and so, uh, you know, starting out here, it's you've been through a lot of really interesting steps in that little introduction, uh, elite wrestling to surgery to then moving on to develop your own platform. What do all these things have in common, and why is this kind of uh, been your journey. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I, I wouldn't have imagined that this would have been my journey, but I think you have to land on, on sort of all these different levels to be able to see where you're going next. If you just focus on the destination, uh, you end up getting mired down in things that maybe isn't your calling or maybe isn't where you're ultimately supposed to go. But to give a bit of background and context, yeah, I've been involved in elite sports since I was a young kid. But it was in grade seven that I really began freestyle wrestling. And, you know, in those first few years, you're taught technique, you're taken through drills, you watch film and identify flaws in your performance and learn from others. But rarely are you given individual drills to perform on your own to address those flaws. 
And while competing from junior high through to high school and then at an international level, I found I placed far more attention on the basic and the fundamental techniques. They became a much larger focus for me in my training. More important, the more elite I became, you know, looking at things both at rest with visualization and imagery and also on task, right? Breaking each movement down into smaller steps and smaller steps again, and then linking them all back together with thousands of repetitions, focusing on every detail and aspect, right? The exact same way every time, looking at things like deliberate practice and intention. In order to achieve world-class, I think you have to identify and understand what it looks like. So at 17, in my last year of high school, I had the opportunity to spend six weeks in the summer of 1984 in Tokyo, Japan, at Kokushkin University. And this was a national training center. We were hosted by Olympic champion Jichiro Date, and the Japanese Olympic team came and trained a few times in the days prior to leaving for the LA Games. And this was intense, right? We trained five to six hours a day, and when my ethos and my mindset were set, with things like you don't win silver, you lose gold, and how you practice is how you compete. It was really that experience, like fighting world champions every day, or getting beat up at times, really, <laughs> that taught me what world-class meant and what was needed. So now through different eyes, I can reflect on mastery training. Because even though I developed a repertoire of technical skills from basic to extreme complexity, I believe that at the international level, you win with basic technique executed perfectly, regardless of the situation. It's action-reaction. And thinking gets in the way. But to get to this state, that of automaticity of your technical skills, it's really the supporting role. Because the more challenging skill to be mastered is the ability to self-regulate, mm. to focus and refocus, to remain calm and control or use your emotions to create a quiet mind. So it was this approach and mindset that I then brought to my own surgical training and practice and teaching from day one, where I sort of swapped out an already mastered technical skill set to begin the acquisition of a new one, but with experience having a refined and streamlined approach uh, over daily practice, but importantly, keeping the cognitive and emotional aspects of performance unchanged. So just as in sport, the intention I placed on every movement and development of my surgical technique and execution never changed. Right? The same motion and feel for skin sutures as for a complex biliary anastomosis or the same two fingers, one centimeter off the knot with both hands to the tissue, whether in the controlled no-pressure environment of the minor surgical suite or when dealing with life-threatening hemorrhage, right? understanding and implementing the importance of an economy of motion and ergonomics. And then looking back and going, well, how can this apply to surgical training? And that's where I got to now, where I said, you know, in surgery, in medicine, we look at transitioning from skill acquisition and execution to autonomy and mastery. And we've never looked at the ability to self-regulate, right? To control the internal environment in the face of a constantly changing internal and external environment. I think that this is where we have the opportunity to be transformational in how the elite performers who populate healthcare are trained in uh, techniques that are necessary, that are requisite, but have never been trained for. That, I think, is the key right there, is uh, as you were describing your experience in developing your mastery and getting exposure to the world-class um, performance of the Japanese wrestling team and how um, kind of the incremental steps of breaking each piece down into smaller bits, mastering the uh, those small fundamental basics and then piecing them all together again. To me, I was thinking, okay, well, how does this translate to surgery? And then back into kind of 
the medical field in general and where uh, professionals who, whether they're surgeons or just are making um, small decisions every day based on limited information that are having enormous impacts on people's lives um, in the in the form of their patients, you know, how can those people break all of that down as well? And, and you, you touched on a few things that carried over from wrestling, but, you know, do you have some kind of, uh, is there like a bullet point list of, of requisites for these elite performers that you carry forward? Oh yeah, that's, that's fantastic leading question. Thanks. There, There are, I mean, I think that there's really four requisite components for performance. The first is technical mastery, and that really comprises the knowledge that one needs and the skill set that one needs to acquire, ultimately leading to automaticity of those technical skills through deliberate practice, intention, feedback, combined with the mental skills as visualization and imagery. And then we come to the human characteristics, right? The self-efficacy, grit, willpower, commitment, mindfulness practices, which all foster resiliency. And then finally, to self-regulation. Right, the more demanding skill to acquire. As I've already said, it's the ability to control your internal environment in the face of a constantly changing internal and external environment. The awareness and control of the body, as well as cognition and emotion, to be able to focus and remain calm and create a quiet mind to enhance performance. And I think that you know you can look at it, and 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 that's how you can break it down in any domain. Right, we need all of those things, and and I think that when we look at elite performers, you know, self-regulation is really the critical area where we need to be focusing on because our skill in anything that we do can be automated, right? We know all of that from, from neuroscience, from cognitive neuroscience, right? With automaticity and how that works with disengagement of the prefrontal cortex and, you know, being able to develop what we call regionalization or uh, of 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 a skill so that the brain can assign a set of neural resources to a specific task and that frees up um, neural energy to deal with other tasks which is the ability to to control yourself from moment to moment mhm it's that um unconscious competence that you've hear uh, may have heard uh people mention right Exactly. I mean, it, it's it's being able to touch on um, things that we don't normally have access to or don't understand how to describe, right? That's what all the biofeedback measures are, you know, and of which heart rate variability is probably one of the, the biggest ones that we use because it's, it's so dominant and, and easy to train. And when I've heard you talk about biofeedback before, you've mentioned that you have a top-down and or a bottom-up approach. And what does that mean? What What is that? Right. Okay. So uh, I think that um, so top-down, bottom-up uh, really looks at the way in which we're training the brain and and the the feedback mechanisms. Right. So um, change evolves slowly. Right. And, and we know that it takes, you know, approximately 66 days to create a new behavior, a new skill, like anything worthwhile and, and meaningful. It, it takes time and needs to be fostered. So an in-depth discussion really on the brain and its neural anatomy or neuroendocrine regulatory feedback systems and how they all apply is beyond the scope of this talk. But the rationale for a top-down, bottom-up approach is really understanding what's happening downstream and how it feeds back right? To train the body to respond to the mind and the mind 
to respond to the body. Just like anybody who listens to Deepak Chopra, I think we spoke about, he refers to a new organ as the body mind. And this is exactly what I'm talking about. And people too many times will, you know, train the cognitive or the or the mental aspect of performance and forget the body. And then they'll train or they'll train the body and forget the mind. And all of a sudden you have somebody uh, who freezes in the moment, right? So why are we using this? Well, neural feedback, and that's our top-down approach, right? Neural feedback research is really beginning to identify who can benefit from this modality of training and really predict the quality of an individual's performance at the next level of difficulty or their ability to tolerate more challenge. And it provides a direct route to training the attentional network of the brain or our executive functions. So that's where we're talking about, you know, the cognitive athlete, right, for enhanced decision making. And it's really better than traditional psychological therapies or self-regulation strategies. Now in biofeedback, that's the feedback from the bottom up. And you know, HRV biofeedback is extremely powerful in changing the affective and emotional centers of the brain and the amygdala. Okay? This was meant when we talk about the heart-brain connection through the central autonomic network or the vagus nerve, which is our dominant parasympathetic system. And I think if you look at um, the neural visceral integration model of Thayer or the polyvagal theory of Porges, it really explains it well. And then finally, from the clinical perspective in this space, research in the last several decades has focused on the internal environment, right? analyzing the psychological, physiological, kinematic, and behavioral mechanisms that underlie performance in elite athletes, particularly in precision sports. And I think that that's why this approach is synergistic with what's required for elite performance in medicine and surgery. So what we've done is we've focused on the interactions of motor skill behavior, advanced sports psychology, and psychophysiology so that this multimodal or multidimensional training of performance um, through self-regulation, it enables an individual to manage and control the perceptual and cognitive functions, which enhance skill acquisition and expertise and performance. And I like how you say that, you know, there are many, there are different camps that take either a top-down approach or a bottom-up approach. And you're not even necessarily saying that they use neurofeedback or biofeedback. It's just that they're, uh, as, as we all do, we kind of tend to focus on something that we think is the magic bullet or the key or the one thing that we can pour our energy to into to become better. And while, in my opinion, it is good to focus on things sometimes and, and just maintain other things um, that if you don't look at the entire picture, so in your, in your case, you're calling it the top-down, bottom-up approach, all as one, <laughs> is that you have to look at both sides of that coin to really reach that elite level of performance or to break through uh, a plateau or a barrier to continued progress, so to speak. 100%. And, I, and I think I, I want to also highlight or e and even ask your opinion on this is that let's say somebody is, um, doesn't maybe consider themselves a, an elite cognitive athlete, like a, um, a surgeon that does complex surgery or uh, something like that. And are these same techniques in your experience useful for people to um, just kind of get to the next level in their life? Oh, 100%. I mean, while I'm speaking today about, you know, elite sport and surgery, not everybody identifies as an athlete or, you know, so I would actually extend this to elite performer performance in any discipline, right? Because the, the DNA of performance 
is has or or elite performance has the same DNA regardless of um, the domain or what you're trying to achieve. So it doesn't matter if you want to be the best dog walker on the street or if you want to be number one in the world in whatever domain you're in. This applies to absolutely everything. I mean, this applies to every interaction that we have. I mean, self-regulation is really the ability to control your thought pattern and your emotions. And I think we can all recognize when you're driving down the highway and somebody cuts you off that we can go into a bit of road rage or when somebody cuts in front of you in the line uh, in the grocery store. Right? This has applicability to everything we do in everyday life. It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mean elite performance. No, yeah, definitely. And and I think that's just an interesting thing to highlight because in a lot of ways, um, if we look at traditional sports and elite performance there, is that a lot of recreational athletes or fitness seekers look to those uh, professionals for ideas on how they could train or ideas on how they could manage nutrition or, um, you know, lifestyle choices clearly. Uh, but that same type of behavior isn't seen in other domains uh, yet today, in my opinion, where we're looking at people like you who are clearly elite performers in the field of medicine. And, you know, what are the things that you do outside of the operating room to make yourself the most effective uh, performer in the operating room? And then me as not an elite surgeon, for example, what can I learn from that? And you, you've just highlighted right there that one of the biggest things that we can all take away from this is the ability to self-regulate and how that kind of ripples throughout life uh, into other situations. But I think another highlight there is how it's not just about what you do in the operating room, right? And so it, it's not just what I'm hearing. It's not just practicing that technical competency and being able to self-regulate in the operating room, that if you're able to bring that outside of the operating room, for example, that that will also have positive effects back in the operating room. So it, life is kind of, uh, it's all one big picture, right? Oh, 100%. I mean, it, it's transferability, right? I mean, and understanding what works in any given situation, right? Because again, if we take surgery, what works for me in the operating room isn't necessarily what's going to work for me when dealing with my children or when dealing with friends and family. So it's understanding, you know, what we need in any given situation, the context of where we are, and then how to apply that and how to transfer. And it's really, it's using the same skills all the time, but understanding how to get into, I mean, I'll say into a neural sweet spot, right? That takes the edge off of those situations for us, right? And that's really kind of understanding your psychophysiology. And that's where what we do is, is really different than what's been done and reported in, in the literature and medicine and surgery to date. And, you know, look, using neural feedback and, and biofeedback is, I mean, that's the upper echelon of, of how you do this. Right? I mean, not everybody has the ability to do that. It usually requires specialty centers. Now, the nice thing about our platform is that we've adopted this for the mobile responsive technology world, right? Where your Fitbit tells you how many steps you walked and my, my core sense tells me what my HRV is at any given moment. 
right? But we also have this for, for, for the brain and for the muscles and for everything else. And so we can put them all back together and it's teaching individuals what works for them because we're not always aware of, of what's working and what's not working. So it's the ability to show people, mm-hmm. provide the awareness of what's working, when it's working and how well it's working for them. And then teach them how to transfer it into real life. And again, as I said, any situation, because what works in one area is not going to work in another. And it's understanding how to control all of our brainwave patterns, right? Because each of the different brainwave patterns has an associated cognitive and emotional process associated with it. So just, um, you know, just as in sport where I may need to elevate my arousal level at a certain point in surgery. You know, when things are going uh, in a situation where it's not going well, I need to be able to tune them down, right? Understanding that when I'm talking to my son about what happened in school, I may find that I'm getting upset about something that he's telling me about, but I need to be able to take the edge off of that. And it's understanding how to transition it into real life. You know, that's where really biofeedback becomes powerful because it's instantaneous, Right. And we know from the HRV literature, and I'll use HRV because that's you know, what we're speaking about today. Um, it's very powerful because you can change it in a matter of seconds. Right. By controlling your breathing and understanding breathing patterns, because breathing affects the brain all the time. And bre- breathing is such an interesting topic. It's come up several times on this show. A lot of people are kind of. Uh, on the one hand, um, everyone's aware of saying, okay, just take a deep breath, like, right, you know, to, to reset, for example. Um, there's, and, and I always like to say that, uh, unfortunately, that leads people to do a really big <laughs> exhale, or I mean, I'm sorry, a, re- a, re- a really and big inhale and, and kind of ignore the exhale. Um, but uh, there's so many uh, opinions about breathing and, and how specific patterns are kind of, again, like a magic bullet for everything. Uh, what type of breathing patterns and techniques do you use kind of at a high level oh, okay. for different scenarios? Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's funny when you're when you actually start talking to people and say, OK, the first thing we're going to do is learn how to breathe. And they're like, what are you talking? I know how to breathe. I came out breathing. <laughs> you're like, OK, yeah, but now we're now we're going to teach you how to breathe right. efficiently. Right and and understanding that and uh, that so many people tighten up as they're breathing and they're using their shoulders and their chest um, for breathing and and how inefficient that is. So the first thing we need to understand is what is real you know efficient breathing um, entail, and that's all diaphragmatic, right? It's allowing with the inhale the abdominal cavity to rise, you know, looking as if you're you know, just gaining weight or, uh, and then allowing it to fall back down. And then the chest and shoulders, they move passively, right? They're not actively involved in the breathing. And I think that's the first thing you need to teach people, you know, so I have them lay down on their back and just focus on, on breathing and the breathing rate that we use for relaxation then becomes very important. And I think that there's a lot of uh, confusion out there about what's the best type of breathing to do. Because in yoga, they teach one type. In meditation, they teach another type. And, you know, n- not that one is better than the other, but some are more effective than others. And we recommend uh, a technique that uh, where your breath in is half as long as your breath out. So if I'm taking three in, it's nice and easy, in, 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 
we get up to the top of the mountain. It's a, it's a roll, a rolling peak. And then exhale. And then the exhale is slow, two, three, four, five, six. So it's twice as long out as it is in. And that really sets you up um, for relaxation. That feeds back to your brain and tells your brain that you're relaxed. But you need to couple that with other things. You can't just, you know, after a couple of breaths, you don't need to think about that anymore. And then you think about things like flattening your forehead, right? Softening your forehead. That feeds back to your brain and says that you're relaxed. Thinking about the jaw and and in breathing, that the jaw shouldn't be tight. It should be lax and slack. So, you know, that's where we carry tension and quote unquote anxieties in our jaw. You know, people don't realize that. And then in our shoulders. So with the breath, it's flattening the forehead, slackening the jaw, relaxing the shoulders, or letting your hands feel and letting your hands feel warm. All those things feed back to the brain to slow you down. That's how we transfer that into, into real life. Resonant frequency breathing, I use that to train my parasympathetic system. Right? That's how I train HRV, but I don't use that in the moment. Right? That's purely for strengthening the parasympathetic system. And I think that people think, oh, I need to be doing my six breaths a minute, um, you know, really anywhere from five and a half to seven and a half. If you're going to measure, you know, someone's resonant frequency perfectly, there's a, there's quite a, an elaborate process to go through to do that. I mean, we tell everybody it's roughly six breaths a minute, but that's not going to produce the best breathing efficiency in any given moment, right? Because you may need to increase your rate or slow your rate down. And I find six six is too lo- too slow for uh, situations where you need to be boom boom boom. Right, right, yeah. That that's definitely one of the uh, the trade offs of kind of um, hooking into one specific uh, pattern and only trying to apply that in all situations. Is you know there are situations where, like you said, the pattern may be too slow for you to get it, get enough of a breath rate to actually uh, sustain. Uh, continuing to perform, for example. And uh, so interesting. So you have different patterns that are for relaxation and for uh, training HRV, so to speak. And, and I, for energizing. And for energizing. Right? Energize, right? You're going to use a different uh, breathing technique for energizing. And it's just, it's understanding what you need to do in, in, in any given moment to get yourself up or down. Right. And then I also like how, okay, so we started off with the question about breathing patterns, but you also tied in the concept of body scan, so to speak, if, if people have heard of like body scan meditation, where um, you start usually at the top of your head, for example, and kind of mentally scan yourself down, down your body and try to find areas that you're holding tension. And you highlighted a few key areas there, like your forehead and your jaw, that hold tension um, unconsciously. And when you combine the uh, relaxation breathing or other breathing patterns with kind of just bringing awareness to those areas of tension, I think one of the things that uh, people don't realize is that with some practice, this can become almost an automatic thing that you do in your life. And that's where the real power comes from. So in my experience, it's not what you do when you're practicing. It's how you use that 
in real life or in the operating room or when you're in an argument with somebody that you really love and you wish that you weren't in that argument. <laughs> right. And that's where that's where daily training and practice comes uh, into play, right? So when and and that's where again to to harken back to the program that we're doing, it's a daily program because things aren't going to change if you're doing it once a week or twice a week, right? You're, you you need to be doing it daily so that it becomes a part of your daily routine, right? And if you look in medicine or surgery, I mean, we're in the hospital, we're out of the hospital. If you're in in sport, if you're a Fortune 500 executive or lawyer, whatever, performing artist, it's what we're doing all the time because we have intensive transfer of learning and over days and weeks and months. And by adapting it and bringing it into your everyday situation through a series of both um, long and short techniques, right, that enable you to transfer, that's when you really get to see the benefit. You're not going to see the benefit when you're just laying at home and stuff like that, doing relaxation. It's when you're applying it daily into your into your everyday life. So again, to, to go back, you know, to HRV, I'm not sure, Jason, how you train for HRV or for how long uh, each day. I mean, the studies would say you need a minimum of 10 minutes to 20 minutes, right? Or 10 minutes twice daily. And well, that's great for training. What I tell people to do is do it 20 times a day for one minute, right? Before you pick up the telephone to make a call, do a minute of, of HRV to calm yourself mm-hmm. down, right? And learn how to put it into life that way. You know, whereas, well, I may do it, you know, 20 or 30 minutes of HRV training a day, which really isn't a lot when you think about it. I mean, I can find five minutes anywhere to do resonant frequency breathing, right? <laughs> Using my, my lead HRV app. It's, it's right beside me and with my core senses right with me. So that becomes very easy, but then it's transferring it into all of those situations. And that's when it becomes natural. Then you don't have to think about it. Right? Remember I said, thinking right. gets in the way. And, and to me, it's like, I like the term self-awareness and how, um, if what, what we think of ourselves as at Elite HRV is a self-awareness tool and basically helping you become aware of your various states, right? Whether that's your morning baseline or the impact of your current, uh, acute stress or what happens when you take a moment to do a little breathing exercise, some body scan or biofeedback, you know, how does that, what are your different states and, and what, how do those different actions impact it? And then over time with practice, you, you don't have to measure every single time, right? You know, you can just do it when you're practicing and then you know that certain behaviors and patterns will have an, a measurable impact that you've measured previously. And now you're aware of, of how that will affect you. And then you can, it's more easy to integrate into all sorts of different activities. And, um, you know, I find myself now nowadays doing a lot of public speaking, for example, um, speaking in front of audiences. And some people say that the uh, public speaking is the only thing people fear more than death. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And um, so I guess I've uh, conquered my fear of death through the public speaking process. But um, <laughs> what I find is that... Um, through the various practice that I've done before with breathing techniques and um, body scanning and mindfulness techniques, 
Um, I still get nervous before public speaking, just like anyone else. Um, but I have some automatic things that I do. One is I like to move my body a little bit because in my opinion, movement is, uh, one of the most therapeutic things for mind and body. And so I like to move a little bit. And then I like to also do some specific breathing patterns. Depending on the situation, I may do some more of a uh, performance priming breathing pattern or a more relaxation type breathing pattern. Depends on what kind of edge I'm feeling, so to speak. Well, exactly. I, I, that's a, you, you've nailed it. It's, it's the awareness of the different mental states. Mm -hmm. right? And we have a host of different mental states that we need to understand and not just understand, but understand how to get in them and stay in them in a moment's notice, right? It, to be able to, it's basically, it's an on-off switch, right? And that's what the, all of this type of training does is it teaches you the awareness of the on-off state. It teaches you, you've learned how to, how to substitute a less successful state for a more successful state in that moment, right? And that's that's the key. Attentional, you know, initially it's attentional focus. Well, that's what you're creating. And then after that, it's learning how to create distraction control or how to refocus that allows you to continue to perform. And it's understanding those states and how all the things that we do can bring us into them and out of them. And it's understanding what's happening again downstream. So most people don't know that they have tension in their shoulders when they're about to speak. So telling them, you know, to breathe in for uh, half as long or to breathe out for twice as long as they breathe in and just roll their shoulders down their back and relax. It's amazing the calming effect that that brings over you, right? Everything we do, be it from speaking to every maneuver in surgery to uh, making a stock trade <laughs> on, on the internet, there's each, each requires its own focus, right? It has its beginning and its own end. And by teaching people how to breathe and control their body awareness, as well as, you know, their cognitive and emotional, uh, involvement with that, that's how you teach performance. So the fact that you're nervous before you speak is a good thing. That's normal, right? If you're not nervous, it means you're not emotionally involved or emotionally engaged in it, right? I get nervous. Right. I get nervous before I do these things too, but it's not a nervousness that is debilitating, right? Because if we look at the at the the stress model, and I and I don't like using the word stress simply because I don't believe there's stress in any situation, but merely how you perceive that situation, right? Because somebody yes. somebody bleeding somebody bleeding to death. I don't find stressful because I can deal with that. Whereas, you know, that would be overwhelming for you. So it's con it's contextual, but we go from, uh, you know, and this is going back to the seventies for Cellier, you know, you, we go from, uh, uh, on a bell curve from calm at the one end to distress at the other end. But at the top of the bell is what we call eustress, right? That's a positive mm -hmm. stress. That's very important, right? That is energizing, it's short-lived, and it's performance-enhancing, right? It's when you start to get down onto the other side of the curve where it starts to become distress. That's right. energy-depleting, that's performance-sapping, and over time, that can become quite maladaptive and create chronic problems, both physical and mental. And I think that's, you know... what. 
that spectrum that you're talking about there is something that um, we all have to deal with on a daily basis in our lives and in our in in various elite arenas for um, whether that be the operating room or as a uh, somebody trying to perform well at their job or elite exactly. athletes or police, fire, military. Um, 100%. The, the demands that are placed on us day to day are ever increasing over time. And while stress is key to life, in fact, without stress, we deteriorate. Um, so a lot of the, the most important parts of life are experienced during periods of eustress. Correct. Um, and that's where we achieve focus and fl- states of flow, so to speak, and things like that. But the accumulation of stress from so many different sources, as well as our perception of, of stress in different uh, situations, is pushing more and more of us down the si- other side of the hill, where we're getting down towards that distress scenario. And I think that you've told me before that that type of scenario is leading to a lot more burnout in the medical community and high rates of stress and overstress in in different uh, jobs as well. And so much so that it's become sort of a cultural norm in certain circles to be overstressed or burnt out. Uh, and, you know, so how do you deal with that? Uh, I, I think that, that, uh, it's, it's, I think that aspect of, 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 of stress and it, it really boils down to resiliency and resiliency training. And, you know, in North America, we're, we live in a culture where you take on more and more and more and more responsibility and uh, right and burnout, which really was first described in the seventies for for looking at you know job dissatisfaction and and things like that or a depressed state related to one's occupation in medicine and surgery now there's an increasing global threat to this, and it's reached the level of an epidemic and why has this happened well if you look at the type of people who go into medicine and surgery, the selection of individuals, they're those who excel. And, you know, they, they have traits like um, industriousness or ambitiousness, right? And this produces great results, but it can also produce an individual who indiscriminately says yes to every opportunity, right? Until it threatens their own personal well-being and their ability to perform because you become stretched beyond really what you're able to handle. And, you know, it's, it's, as you know, it's the, it's the trap of achievement, right? And, and that's, you know, that's what you're striving for. You have an entire group of elite performers and now they're competing against only another group of elite performers. And, you know, the only way that they view being able to get ahead is through taking on those challenges. But when you take on extracurricular roles or projects, I mean, I think people, in general, need to start asking themselves, you know, whether this is going to result in achievement, but also fulfillment, right? And that's the key, right? Achievements derived from external validation. Fulfillment comes from internal satisfaction. And I think we got into this cycle and trap where, you know, we're so focused on the external validation. Oh, I'm going to get a promotion. Oh, I'm going to get a leadership role. Oh, I'm going to get this. I'm going to get that. But at the um, at, at to to the detriment of our own personal well-being, you know, and that's where you know in our platform 
we bring in the importance of rest, recovery, sleep, and nutrition, right? Because they're, mm-hmm. they're critical to performance, right? I mean, in Canada, um, burnout-related uh, issues is costing the Canadian healthcare system about $213 million annually. In the United States, across all physicians, it's upwards of $17 billion annually. I mean, that's enormous from, you know, decreased productivity from early retirement. I mean, we need to look at treating the healthcare profession as a whole, treating the treaters, right? Or or we're not going to have anybody to take care of us. And, you know, this is another area where this platform becomes hugely important because inherent within this top-down, bottom-up approach of neurofeedback and biofeedback are, are positive direct effects on mental and physical health as a whole. And there's just so many, so many ways we could take this conversation. You know, one of the things that I think pretty much everyone can appreciate is uh, in a, in a work environment, you often hear, if you want something to get done, give it to the busiest person. Right. And because they're, they're so busy that they're going to fit it in really quickly, get it done. They're usually high achievement uh, oriented people, type A, some people might call them. Um, and But when you're talking about something like uh, surgery or police, fire, military, or some type of executive decision that has a, a ripple effect on thousands of people, um, things like that, or millions of people, depending on... <laughs> Uh, how high up you're talking about in an executive uh, leadership, but um, is that, you know, when, if you had the selection of uh, two different surgeons, so to speak, to, to work on you, and you had no other information other than the fact that one of them was burnt out and one of them was well-rested, which would you want to operate on you? <laughs> right. <laughs> And so I would want the well-rested one. Yes, know? you know, and and that's uh, it's interesting because uh, given some other context, it, you may say, okay, well, the well-rested one might just be uh, less experienced and less practiced and uh, less serious about um, high achievement, and the burnt-out one may be more high-performing, achievement-oriented, etc. But then. There's going to be a line somewhere where burnout's going to cause more mistakes. It's going to cause uh, judgment issues. Um, you know, we what we find in translating again to police, fire, military, they have a concept called tactical breathing. They have a lot of rules around how long the um, first responders are allowed to be on call and when when they're allowed to be called out based on uh, how recently they've been on various shifts. And I know that depending on the location of where people are, that's not always strictly adhered to, um, that there is a lot of burnout issues in that arena too. But when you see a situation like where you get into a a life-threatening situation or uh, decisions all of a sudden have to be made quickly, automatically, in split-second decisions um, that have really important effects, that is a huge risk to have a depleted system going into that. Um, And things like tactical breathing can help, but only as an aid to a a bigger picture um, approach. Right, right? 100%. All these things are are adjuncts, 
right? And they all need to, to function together in an integrative way, right? You need to be able to bring them all together to create an environment that enhances performance. So while, you know, while some might look at the person who's well-rested as being less prepared, coming from the perspective of um, elite or optimum performance, we can look at it and say, this person has really um, uh, adapted the ability to self-regulate and understands what's required for elite performance on a consistent basis. So maybe they're not frazzled and um, and burnt out because they've been able to manage what's important, when it's important, and how to prioritize what they need to do to be able to perform when it truly matters most, when life's on the line, not when they're doing paperwork. Yeah, and, and, and I think also I really wanted to highlight too that when you talked about practicing meditation and you said rather than doing 20 minutes a day, do 21 minute segments per day. And obviously we're just picking random numbers here. So if that sounds daunting sure. to somebody, you can start with five minutes or, or even three one minute sessions per day. But the idea is to kind of ramp up to getting to the point where it becomes almost unconscious and automatic. And that also, when you can start to integrate various practices automatically into your life and routine, you also reduce the cognitive load of performing that activity. And so uh, the, the idea of a habit is that, for example, uh, you know, I'll use a, an at-home example here, is I really don't enjoy doing dishes that much. And um, uh, growing up, luckily, I had several people in my life that helped me form a habit around doing dishes. And once it became a habit, it really doesn't bother me that much. Yeah, I still, if I, if I sit there and think about it, I can definitely think of other things I'd want to do. But it it's just easy now for me because it's become a habit. And so it that's, doesn't... That... Sorry. No, no, no. It's, I, was, I think we're about to say the same thing. It, it, so I'll let you take it from there because... I was going to say, yeah, that's where, that's where uh, it, you know, it takes 66 days to create a new habit, a new behavior, or a new skill to lay down that new neural network, right? So that's why you need to do it every single day. And people used to say, well, it takes three weeks to, to develop a new, uh, a, a new habit or to break a habit, right? Like the people first stop smoking, they say, oh, it's three weeks. That's completely nonsensical that that actually came believe it or not from the 1950s there was a, a plastic surgeon who noted that it took about three weeks for his patients to notice changes and then based on that they wrote you know this manifesto of it takes three weeks to for 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 new behaviors and new habits but it's been shown there, there was <laughs> there was yeah there, there was actually it's only ever been found uh, or i've only ever found one study it was in 2010 out of the uh university colleges of london looking at behavior formation. And it came out that it's about 66 days to create this new neural network. I mean, if this is all about neuroplasticity, right? Rewiring, you can, you can create any skill, behavior, or habit you want through the process of neuroplasticity. We've barely even, we've not touched on that today. And you know, perhaps we can talk about that in, in another segment. I mean, because that's exactly what all of this is doing, right? It's all through the process of neuroplasticity that we can rewire ourselves, retrain our brain to create any scenario that we want. And can you imagine that every 66 days you can create a new skill, behavior, or habit? Like that's phenomenal. 
That's huge. And it, it starts, you know, as with, like you said, we don't have to get into the depths of neuroplasticity at this moment, but it starts with upfront effort and it gets easier with time. Yep. And then I would also say in my experience that habits are not necessarily uh, once you get the habit, it's there forever, you know, because there's life and there's stress and there are situations that uh, will test your uh, the strength of that habit and your decision making under pressure. And uh, it takes a little bit of ongoing nurturing to keep good habits, especially if they're uh challenging ones or, or not inherently enjoyable, so to speak. But what I find is that t- speaking about um, life and fulfillment versus achievement and satisfaction versus uh, internal satisfaction versus external validation is that maximizing the area under the curve of internal satisfaction across your whole life um, is... Uh, ultimately, I think what people are trying to do, you know, there's a lot of uh, people who toss the word around, like, I just want to be happy type thing, but happiness and satisfaction are also different. Um, And anyways, the point I'm getting at is that uh, like a flywheel, a habit takes a while to get going, but then once it gets going, as long as you kind of keep nurturing a little bit, it, it runs with a lot less effort overall. And when you can instill those patterns in life or in, you know, your elite performance scenarios, uh, that's when I feel like satisfaction is increased greatly and you can keep that area under the curve pretty high over the course of time by just keeping all of those flywheels going. And uh, one of those too is the evolution and learning of new things, and new habits, um, and so not being stagnant as well, but it sounds, it sounds daunting, doesn't it? But, but really to, for, for people who are listening, it's not, it, it's simple, um, because it's small steps, it's small things every day, right? It, and, and, and as Jason said, it, you know, you, it, it's about reinforcement, rest, recovery to allow everything to, to continue to function. And this leads right back to one of the very first things that I said in the beginning, which is as I became more elite, well, I developed a repertoire of skills from basic to those of extreme complexity. It's the basic techniques that need to be reinforced every day, the simple things every day that enable you to perform, right? World class is, is a series of basic technique executed perfectly regardless of the situation. It's not this whole big cog, cog quagmire of, of, of wheels moving everywhere. It's doing the simple things over and over and over again. That's huge. And, and having that strong base and foundation to work from uh, plays out in, in the operating room as well as in life in general, right? <laughs> 100%. Well, uh, Dr. Richard, I think this is a good place to start concluding. And I, I know that we have at least a dozen or hundred, maybe more things that we could dig into. Um, you know, what's one thing maybe that folks could think about today, uh, taking out of this and something that they could kind of integrate into their routine as we, uh, postpone the rest of this conversation where we'll get into neuroplasticity and some other things in greater depth in the future. 
Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, given that we're talking about well, neurofeedback at a later date, this is really about, you know, about biofeedback and about there, there's a whole host of biofeedback measures and techniques. I mean, while everybody looks to meditation as the most common, it's practiced uh, widely, there's other things that you can do um, that will help you achieve mindfulness faster, easier, and more consistently. And, and it's understanding those. And resonant frequency breathing training is, is one of them. You know, so is things like progressive muscle relaxation or autogenic exercises, cognitive reframing. So if there's one thing, I mean, we've talked about looking at doing your tactical breathing, your HRV for, you know, a minute, 20 times a day. And you've said maybe three times a day. It doesn't matter where you start. I mean, just pick something and say you're going to do it and you're going to do it daily, you know, for the next month or two months. It doesn't take much. I started it by um, deciding every time I was going to pick up the phone to make a call, I was going to do just a minute of, of a relaxing breathing, doing my be it HRV training or just you know, uh, a breathing technique to relax me or before I had to engage with my secretary or whatever. And you do that, all of a sudden, it doesn't become a big deal. You know, you walk from your office to the cafeteria or out to get a coffee. You can do it in that time. It doesn't have to be something where you set the time aside to do it. Just do it. And next thing you know, you'll be doing it more and more because how you feel, the benefit of that is just so great. Uh, and it comes so quickly. I love that. Yeah. And, you know, it, it takes a little bit of practice, but like you said, I, I like to integrate it into brushing my teeth or uh, driving in the car or things that basically it's hard to do anything else uh, or, you know, uh, it's easy to do those small techniques during those activities because you're not focused uh, on other things. And well, that's why they work so well, right? I mean, people say, how does this, how does breathing work with anxiety? Well, it's because you're focusing on the breathing that you don't have time to worry about what you're anxious about. Right, right. Yep. Yep. The, the top down, bottom up. <laughs> exactly. 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 Well, Dr. Richard, this has been extremely interesting. And do you have any announcements to share with everybody at this point in the uh, progress with your project? Oh, I, I mean, uh, we're at the point, obviously, where we're we're starting to build the clinical dashboards now to be able to implement this on a, on a wide scale uh, basis. So I, I'll keep you appraised of, of that. I mean, it's a, it's a big task, uh, to build, but you know, we're, we've, we, we understand now how to take everything that we would do in a specialized center and make it, um, for the mobile responsive world, uh, which means then you can take it everywhere you go and you're able to train daily and, and which is, which is the key. Um, you know, I'm hoping, uh, to be able to change the way the elite performers who populate the world of healthcare, including first responders, because that's critical. You've mentioned them several times. I agree a hundred percent, you know, to teach people to get in and stay in that zone of optimum performance. So helpfully, you know, moving forward, have a new paradigm for, for training how those who provide our care are trained to provide that care. Awesome. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And, you know, being a leader of a, a growing business that reaches a lot of people is I'm 
uh, all ears when it comes to these topics because I would love to always increase my performance um, in a sustainable and in uh, way that uh, I both achieve and also perceive of internal fulfillment. And so I uh, appreciate your time and sharing these things with me and with our listeners because as we're all growing uh, together, that I think it's increasingly apparent that the state of our mind and that mind-body connection or that organ that you said Deepak Chopra uh, has termed the body-mind is something that we can all benefit from exercising. I agree 100%. And then I'm, I'm available to come and give talks on this stuff anytime as well. I, I love talking about it and just being able to engage with people and hear their response and you know, learn about other areas where they feel that this could be applied because, you know, I don't have all the answers as to where it can go. And I, everybody knows somewhere in their life that they can put this and it just creates more and more opportunities to be able to grow with everyone and to learn from everyone. Awesome. And so we'll wrap there and we will put links to everything at EliteHRV.com slash podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, we appreciate a review over on iTunes. And thank you again, Dr. Richard, for taking time out of your busy schedule to share this information with us. And we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Jason. I appreciate it. Have a wonderful day and happy 4th of July to all of you Americans. <laughs> Cheers. Happy Canada Day as well. <laughs> Thanks very much. The Elite Academy now offers in-depth online courses on multiple subjects. So if you're enjoying the content of this podcast, but you're looking for a more structured and logical progression, looking at the science and application of these subjects, check out the Elite Academy at EliteHRV.com academy.